2: From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Wrightsis, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening, as together we continue to navigate life during quarantine. If you enjoy wordplay and reading witty fiction, I highly recommend The Grammarians by Kathleen Shine. The author joins us for an in-depth conversation later in the hour. First, the show must go on. When it comes to professional musical theater, we have quite the hometown hero in shuler Hensley. He is an Olivier and Tony Award-winning actor with a long list of roles on Broadway, in London's West End, and in film. He continues to live in our area and nurtures young talent in Georgia with a competition each year. He joins us now via Zoom, along with Angela Farr Schiller of the ArtsBridge Foundation. Welcome to City Lights.
3: Yes, thank you. Once again, it's my favorite time of the year to be with you.
1: <laughs> thank you so much, Lois. Pleasure to be here. Well, for
2: those unfamiliar with the Schiller Awards, how would you describe the competition?
1: So the Georgia High School Musical Theater Awards, affectionately known as the Schulers, is a large scale, I would call it competition, but also platform that serves almost 10,000 students from across the state. We have 75 schools that are competing throughout the entire year. So I would say approximately through October through March. And we have 60 adjudicators that are going out, professionals from throughout the state in music, in dance, directing design that go out and adjudicate all of these schools. And then it all accumulates together traditionally in April, but this year in May, in the Georgia High School Musical Theater Awards. How is the repertoire chosen? Essentially, the schools have an opportunity to choose any show that they want that's under the guidelines. So our parent organization is the Broadway League in New York City, and they have a listing every year of shows that are eligible, Broadway shows that are eligible for the competition. And so schools are able to choose from a huge list of shows dating back from the 1950s to current and contemporary shows to be able to perform for us that we come out and we adjudicate them.
2: Schuler, you spoke so beautifully of your commitment to helping nurture young talent when you were on our show last year, and you credited that to your mom.
3: Yes, every day. And my mom, Iris Hinsley, was the um, artistic director of the Georgia Ballet. She was a local hero. She had a chance to dance in New York and went to New York for a couple of years, but really her heart was in trying to develop the arts locally in Atlanta and came home. And for over 40 years, she ran a very successful dance company. And that was my initial uh, introduction to the stage was Fritz and the Nutcracker. I was actually a ballet dancer, which I know is shocking to most people who are able to see me and my size. But it was uh, an amazing introduction to live theater and the power of of an audience experiencing something together with a, with a live audience. And she always instilled in me to give back to the community. So I've really taken this honor to be a part of this, the Georgia High School Musical Theater Awards. And every year, no matter where I am, I make sure whatever I'm doing that I block out at a minimum, the three days around the award show, because not only are the kids amazing, but the energy is amazing, and it it re-energizes me as an actor and a performer why I do this.
2: Angela, we mentioned that you are with the ArtsBridge Foundation. What is the role of ArtsBridge in terms of the competition?
1: The overall mission of ArtsBridge is to expand arts education for all Georgia students so that essentially everyone can have access to really high-level, high-quality arts. And so we have four primary ways that we fulfill that mission. One is through field trips, where we invite hundreds of students from across the state to come to the Cobb Energy Center to put them in connection with world-class international and national artists. We also have family field trips trips, we do Broadway series workshops, and then our kind of crown jewel event of the year are the Georgia High School Musical Theater Awards. So it's one of four really large kind of public-facing, public-serving platforms that we have to fulfill our mission. And I have to say, as the Director of Arts Education, it is absolutely one of my very favorites. Oh,
2: well,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. I mean, all of your work is impressive.
3: You know, it's, it's interesting in listening to Angela, too. I, I have to say, when we talk about arts education, a lot of times, well, at least when I was a kid and my mom would talk about arts education, it, it sounds like it's a class it's beyond education. I think it's, it's uh, for lack of a better word, it's immersion. And it's the ability and the, the opportunity to give these kids opportunities to not only be educated about art, but to be immersed in it and to be in a venue like the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. I mean, that's a world class venue. We're very fortunate to have something so pristine and and beautiful and magical. And then to have these kids come in and essentially take that over and it becomes their venue for the show. It's just Honestly, this is our 12th year, and I am constantly running into kids who, for whatever reason, maybe didn't even pursue uh, the arts, but are like an architect. I met an agent on the streets of New York, and it wasn't about the Broadway. It wasn't about all the things going on in New York. Their first thing was, you know, I was in the Georgia High School Musical Theater Awards, and it was one of the most magical moments of my life.
2: Oh, how gratifying. How gratifying.
3: It's those moments, especially during a time like this, when we're all dealing with what means something in life and, and what are the really important things, those are those moments where a connection with a fellow actors and teenagers and just people coming together, which we um, know we've taken for granted until something like the COVID and experiencing something together just sort of lifts everyone involved. And I feel like that's what's so amazing. And to see it through a teenager's eyes every year when they're just getting started in life and they're everything's a possibility. You don't have those experiences. You just are at the start of the race. And and it's just magical to be a part of that.
2: Now, you mentioned COVID-19. Angela, No doubt you had to pivot when schools started shutting down in March, and it involved much more work, I would think. How did you manage to continue the competition when
1: you had to adapt to the virtual realm? It was a really large pivot. Um, I think part of it is that in kind of mid-March when things started shutting down, because there wasn't a unified shutting down of everything and we serve, Um, anywhere around 24 different Georgia counties, 26 different Georgia school districts. Every school district, every county was pivoting in different kinds of ways. And so we really had to hunker down, up our communication game and really think about what's really important in this moment and how can we still fulfill our mission in this moment? And for me, that was to be able to continue with the Schuler Awards. We were able to adjudicate, I think, almost 90% of the schools. So there were a few that we weren't able to adjudicate just because of different timing as far as closures and things like that. But we decided to go ahead and go forth. And for me, part of it was that the Schulers is bigger than just the competition. The competition is one part of the platform, but we also are able to give out, um, it's the platform that allows us to give out Uh, over $10,000 worth of scholarships every year. It's the program that also helps us to give feedback through our adjudication so that schools and theater programs can advocate for themselves with their principals and with their school districts based on the feedback that, you know, we have been able to give them via going out to their schools. So there is a lot that was at stake if we had decided to not have the program. And for me, I feel like The resiliency that we want to inspire from our students. We really needed to model for ourselves. So we decided we would go forward with it and really try to reimagine and lean into this new medium in which we are charged to serve our students and really mine it for everything that it can give us as far as still being able to serve our students and fulfill our mission. And so um, we are going forward and I am so excited that we're still able to have Schuler there as our host to really kind of bring everything together, but still be able to work with students from across the state via Zoom, via um, different types of uh, electronic modes so that lots of students can still participate in the platform and in the show. So we're super, super excited about the choice to continue to go forward.
2: So on May 14th, when this ceremony is broadcast, what can viewers expect? We know Shuler will be presenting the awards. Will we see excerpts of the kids' performances as we do on, say, the Tony Award show?
1: so this is kind of a crazy time as far as rights go, as far as rights to musicals or showing things on video. There's a whole thing around being able to check off those boxes. So we had to think creatively if we're not able to use excerpts from the show, or there's some schools that they didn't film it because that's not in their contract that they have with the publishing house. So we had to really think creatively. So our musical director, we have two musical directors, Leanne Kennedy and and Cheryl Rogers. And Cheryl actually wrote an original song for the show that we have put together a large virtual choir to be able to use original work inside of the show instead of having to try to get the rights, especially since a lot of those publishing houses are in New York City and they're just trying to find their way as well. So we've had to think creatively, you know, and we're artists, that's what we're charged to do. Um, So I will say this, there are gonna be some really surprising moments inside of the show, some really touching moments, some really moving performances from the students because it is about them, it is about, giving them a platform. So we've really tried to think outside the box, how to still provide that platform of performance for our students from across the state.
2: For this ceremony, because they were putting on those shows in their schools. And can you just tell us a few
1: examples,
2: some of those shows?
1: Oh, absolutely. So um, we have seen Rent, Hello, Dolly. So we got, got some classics, some some newer works. Milton High School did Holiday Inn this year. I would say the whole gamut of shows. We've seen um, Shrek <laughs> the Musical has been done, and so lots of really, really amazing work out there that we really wanted to still be able to honor because we know that you know this is a really special time in an artist's life, right? When they're in high school, they're they're doing it for fun and for free, and so we just really wanted to honor and lift up that work with the show. And so we've we've brought in a few elements of the work that they've done inside of their programs into the show. Um, but it does have its limits, as I said, because of rights. But thinking outside the box, I think the show is going to be amazing. Do you
2: have any plans to feature those schools who were not able to participate Any plans for them on down the road?
1: Yes, yes. We have thought long and hard about those schools. All 75 schools are beloved to us. And when our mission is to serve all of them, we really tried to make sure that we did that. So the first thing that we did is that it's a very, it's a lot of stiff competition to get into the competition. We basically, last year, August 1st, opened up the competition and Essentially, in about 20 minutes, it was completely filled up with the 75 schools with a pretty long waiting list. So what we have decided to do this year for those eight programs that we weren't able to adjudicate is that we have allowed them the invitation to automatically be enrolled in the program for next year just so that since they weren't able to complete it for this year and then we have also invited them to bring representatives from each of those eight schools to be a part of a larger virtual choir that's going to be the closing number for the show so that they also get an opportunity to participate and to represent their schools.
3: I wanted to piggyback on something that was just mentioned about, you know, when I teach kids and I I work with young kids who are trying to make it in this business as an actor or performer, I always talk to them about, don't limit yourself on the medium that you work with. So rather than saying, I'm a musical theater specialist, you're a performer and you need to, you need to become very proficient with all aspects of different Mediums, including how to take yourself, how to use social media platforms, how to you know use sound, how to how to do it all, so that in high school, it's not just the introduction, but that you're not limited by anything. You become a creator. I think this has been a huge goal of mine. Being involved in this musical theater awards program is that it's not just musical theater it's being a creator of art and what's so amazing about something like covid19 where these kids have been their number one thing they've been looking for all year has been taken away from them you know this celebration in one respect but because of that they've learned to be creative in other venues and i'm seeing things online now you know, like videos and and things that these kids do in their own homes that are is just spectacular.
2: Schuler, you were preparing to star in The Music Man on Broadway this September with your friend and colleague Hugh Jackman. I take it that will not open in September as planned.
3: Well, you know everyone is is cautiously optimistic, and our our rehearsal schedule keeps being pushed back. You know, I have talked to uh jerry za the the director and and Warren Carlyle, the choreographer, and I talked to Hugh about it. I mean we all are really dedicated to to getting this revival to Broadway um but you know Broadway is really in something that that's never never experienced before. And I really think because of the the way this virus uh, interacts that large venue shows are going are gonna be some of the last things to come back. So you know, it's not canceled. It's just it's just pushback. and and I put my money where my mouth is. That does not stop me from rehearsing. I was supposed to be in dance rehearsal, believe it or not, for the show. So Warren Carlisle, the choreographer, has sent me video files of my choreography. And so I'm in my living room doing those flawlessly, by the way. <laughs> and, I'm sure. And yeah. I have to learn to play a ukulele. So I'm very busy creating even that with all the havoc that's happening.
2: I am not surprised by how nimble you are when you were talking about how you encourage kids to be creators and not just specialized in one area. There may be kids who don't realize that you have a background in opera. And you were a baseball player.
3: That's right. Well, my mom was a ballet director, but my dad was also an All-American football player at Georgia Tech. So I grew up in a very fortunate, but rare environment where arts and sports went hand in hand. And I just am a first-hand example of somebody who I try to do. I, I don't like somebody to tell me that I can't do something, especially when it comes to art, because I think art is, in some sense, is always connected. It's a way of expressing emotions, of connecting to other people, of trying to reach a higher level of existence between one another. I mean, it's everything. It's this energy that's, that really fuels the, the amazing aspects of the human condition. And, and I think that's everywhere. So art can be, you know, I'm, I'm trying uh, my hand at, at painting landscapes right now. I'm, I'm going out with my iPhone on morning, you know, up and down the driveway, trying to, Take the picture of the same flower but different days, and just seeing—you know—whatever it is, it's the ability to get outside of yourself and to um, appreciate the world around you. And I think it can only enhance your level of, as a performer, as an actor, and as a human being.
2: I commend you. The Schuler Awards, the competition. The work that you do with the ArtsBridge Foundation, Angela Farshiller, Schiller, I congratulate you on a beautiful job. And Shuler Hensley, what a shining role model these students have in you. Thank you both so very much. Thank you. For more information about the Schuler Awards and ceremony, check our website at wabe.org citylights City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The novels of Kathleen Shine are rich in humor and filled with memorable characters. She's a keen social observer, repeatedly compared to Jane Austen, Especially if Jane Austen were from an upper middle class Jewish family in New York. Schein often writes about families, and her latest book explores the relationship of twins through their love of language. When I spoke with Kathleen Schein from NPR West in December, she explained why she wanted to write about twins. Originally,
0: it never even occurred to me I I wanted to write about two people who were close in some way, I hadn't decided what the relationship was, who have a falling out over a word, and and originally they were going to be translators. But then I realized I only speak English, so writing about translation was not going to be very authentic, shall we say. Someone mentioned Dear Abby and Ann Landers to me, and they were identical twins. And they had an enormous feud. They were identical twins, both of whom had advice columns that were very important in my day, growing up. Everybody read them. Yes. But they had an enormous feud for decades. And so that made me think about twins. And then I thought, no, twins, it's too difficult. I can't even imagine what it's like to be a twin. The more I thought about it, the more... It seemed to be exactly the relationship that I wanted, which is one that is so close, and yet the two parties really need to differentiate themselves and be individuals. And that kind of energy, that kind of magnetic push and pull was something I really wanted to explore. So I don't have twins, I'm not a twin, I don't know very many twins, but it became more and more intriguing the more I thought about it.
2: I know there's been a lot of research in recent years by sociologists and yes. uh, developmental psychologists on twins. Did you immerse yourself in any of that?
0: I did. And some of the early research was so unethical. I mean, it's really terrifying. Twins would be separated Put in different families, and then studied, but one would be put into a poor family, and one would be put into a well to do family mm. and they 'd be stu- and they were never told they were twins. <gasps> Things like that were done, which were really sort of awful. There was a lot of confusion about twins, and I think there 's always been this mystique because it 's something that 's so hard to take in. Yeah, I read a lot about it, and I, I read things written by twins. And there's a uh, there's a big convention of twins in, I believe it's in Twin Falls, Minnesota. <laughs>
2: of course it is. Um,
0: which I did not go to, but I wish I had. But finally, you know, you really have to do what you always have to do with a character, which is imagine who they are, what they're feeling, what they're seeing. And when I imagined one of them looking at the other, I found it really profound and exciting to write about. So what I was afraid of getting into, because it was too remote from me, finally turned out to be a really interesting, kind of exciting experience.
2: Hmm. In fact, I wanted to ask you about the photo on the cover, these adorable (laughs) little redhead girls. Are they actual people you know?
0: I know nothing about them. That cover was sent to me, and usually the first cover that's sent to you is not particularly good, and you kind of think, oh, no, they don't understand the book. What are we going to do? How am I going to say this politely? But this cover was sent to me, and I thought, oh, my God, someone just hit it. I don't know who they are. I don't know where they found them. I don't know what they did to them to make them look like th- they're fabulous. I, I love them. They're creepy and they're adorable (laughs) at the same time. They're mischievous looking. You have a little touch of possible destruction in them, and they're adorable. So I I love them. Yeah, I was very, very excited about the cover.
2: As the story begins, the twins, Laurel and Daphne, are communicating in a way that belies the fact they are infants. Would you describe their exchange? Lots of times
0: twins have a secret language. And it's not a formal language in the sense that linguists consider different dialects and things a language. But it's their language, and they communicate in it, and they talk back and forth from their cribs. This is not uncommon for twins. And so I had my twins just start talking when they're just babies And to their parents, it sounds like they're talking baby talk. But in fact, they're having this rather sophisticated and fairly cynical conversation (laughs) about how their parents are always late bringing them the bottle. And, well, maybe if I scream, they'll hurry up you know this kind of manipulative cynical conversation about their parents but they're just two little tiny babies in their cribs
2: and their language the language they created to communicate between themselves is blingo
0: you know i had originally thought oh i'm going to create a whole language which is hilarious when you know about language when which i learned i mean it's it's uh, it's very difficult but what I did do was I looked at the Mitford sisters, mm-hmm. Nancy Mitford, Jessica Mitford. The younger Mitford sisters had their own language that they made up, and it had certain grammatical rules and phonetic rules. Someone had done a, a like a graduate study poster of it, which I found on the Internet, and um, I kind of studied that and tried to figure out a few a few rules for for my girls' language, and so there's a there are a few bits where it's in their language, but usually I, I translate it for the reader.
2: Yes, you do it adeptly. How does never become defter? Did you have a um, formula there?
0: If you think of a sort of nasal n, the it it kind of turns into a. So I had a few. I don't know if you call it phonetic or phonological or just. Me fooling around, um, <laughs> trying to speak in a nasal voice, but I had a I had a couple of little equivalencies that I that I used, and then was able to to
2: make up some of the words. The pediatrician tells their mother that this is not unusual, and they will outgrow it once they begin to speak properly. That does not happen.
0: And no, they keep the language for special secret communication between it's the two of them. kind of how my parents
2: used Yiddish. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. There's, uh, you know, a risque joke, you get to the punchline, right. out with the mother tongue. Right. That's he, my grandmother used to do that. And and that's why I finally,
0: I would beg my grandparents to teach me some words so I could understand their dirty jokes. So.
2: <laughs> well, Each chapter begins with a definition from a dictionary of the English language by Samuel Johnson. Did you apply the chapter headings as the final touch to the chapter, or did you choose the word and then the chapter, that part of the plot followed?
0: No, I wrote the book, had the chapters, And then I tried various words. I changed them a lot. Um, And sometimes I think, yes, this is the word. And then I'd go back and look at it, and I'd think, no, it's it's not right. And when I found the right word was when I then understood what that chapter was really about. It worked together. The word and the chapter when I knew it was the right word was also when I had a kind of real understanding of what that chapter was. Was about, what it was doing. That was an amazingly satisfying and really fun part of the composition of the book. That was really fun because, first of all, I got to read through Samuel Johnson's dictionary, which is you know, for me, it's like reading a comic book or something. It's just <laughs> delightful. And there are all these words I've never heard of that are obsolete. And a lot of his definitions are quite amusing. So that was a kind of procrastination without guilt. You know, I could do that and say, oh, I'm working. And then finding the word was a great revelation when I really found the right word. So that was great. But yeah, I did it at the end. If I'd done it at the beginning. It wouldn't have worked for me. It just would have been boring. I would have been writing a chapter to fit a word, which is not the way I I work.
2: Not the process. Well, it's gratifying for the reader as well, because you encounter the word at the opening of the chapter, and after the chapter ends, if you thumb back a few pages and look at that word, it has all the more meaning. In terms of the story.
0: I wanted that kind of resonance for it. Thank you. Would you talk
2: about the role of a modern dictionary in this story?
0: One of the characters, really, I would say, is the Merriam-Webster International Dictionary, second edition, which was... In the 60s, the uh, third edition came out, which was a big scandal in the world of lexicography because the third edition incorporated all kinds of slang without designating it as slang, just saying these are not words that we can consider real words. And a lot of very conservative lexicographers and just readers and English teachers were horrified. But the second edition, which is what is a kind of character in the book was was much more formal. Of course, I love both, but I found the I had just read a wonderful book called The Story of Ain't, which is about this transition from the second to the third edition. So I wanted this dictionary to kind of play a role as the standard against which these girls would either rebel or actually just embrace it. But then I decided I actually had to have one of these dictionaries. You know, they're certainly out
2: of print. But apparently I ordered two on eBay. Well, this dictionary is a sacred object for the twins. And in fact, it stands is compared to an altar. I think a lot of people my age, sort of boomer age,
0: remember a dictionary on a big stand, either in your house or your grandparents' house, and there was something kind of sacred about it. It was this very special thing, and you could go and look at it, and and it opens up an entire world. I mean, many people felt the same way about, say, the the World Book or Mm -hmm. the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, pre-internet, pre-Google, this was like, you know, Googling things. I very much imagined this big dictionary open on this stand and having it be a kind of altar. And when I first wrote that, I thought, oh, altar, that will be one of the words that they look up. And it was before I had my dictionary. So I went online and some pages of that dictionary are online. You can find them, a facsimile of them, or a photograph of them, basically. The only problem was that page was missing, the mm. page with Alter. So at first I was very upset and thought, what am I going to do? And then I thought, oh, well, I'll put that in the book. They'll look up Alter and that page will be missing. Mm. So,
2: Well, their mother, the twins' mother, Sally, worries what kind of child befriends a dictionary and tries to take it to bed with her so he will have someone to talk to. Kathleen, were you like that as a kid? Did
0: you love dictionaries? I was too lazy, really, as a child. I, I read a lot, and I read things that were much too difficult for me. I fancied myself that kind of child, and I wanted to go look things up, but then I'd get distracted and, and not do it. So these children are, are uh,
2: much more assiduous mm-hmm. than, uh, than I was as a child. In fact, they treat words as their pets. Would you yeah. explain how their love for language dictates the trajectory of their lives?
0: As children, they love words almost in a reified way. They think of them as things, really, and they play with them. They have games, not, not like crossword or anything like that, but as if each word is a creature. And they collect words, and they just, they love them as if they were pets. As they get older, one of them, the younger one, becomes first a copy editor whose job really is to make sure that that the words in a piece of copy, in in this case, she's working for a, a downtown New York. Newspaper to make sure that there are no grammatical mistakes or spelling mistakes or confusion caused by the words. And she becomes quite rigid about it. You know, she really feels like grammar is like good government, it <laughs> keeps everything stable and running smoothly. And it is that in a certain way. Whereas her sister, Laurel, the older one, she starts out, she's a kindergarten teacher, but She quits her job when she gets pregnant. She wants to be home with her baby when the little girl starts to speak. She's still obsessed with language, fascinated by it, but in a different way. And she wants to observe it. She wants to listen, not to tell people what to do about it, but to listen as her daughter discovers language, the birth of language. And eventually she discovers, it's actually a book about by a biolinguist uh, named Charles Fries that I also used as, as research. And she discovers th- these um, little fragments of, of language that he used, of, of informal language that was written because these were letters to the War Department. So they're very ungrammatical, a lot of them. And he used them uh, to kind of describe how people do or do not follow grammar when they speak. And she finds them, as I did, very moving. They're just heartbreaking, but they're just little fragments about, you know, please... I need, my, I need my son at home. It's very hard to maintain the dirt floor. You know, he's much younger than he said he was. He lied when he went into the army. It, we need him. We can't survive without him. We're hungry. Uh, they're, but they're beautiful. It's like listening to a song, really. Mm. And from these, she starts composing poetry. And she then becomes a, a poet kind of using these fragments in her poems. So they go in in different ways. And in linguistics, there's an age-old discussion, shall we say, uh, between what are called descriptivists, who are linguists who say, look, our job is not to tell people how to speak, but to describe and understand how people do speak and what language is doing and how it changes. And then there are prescriptivists who say, there is a formal way to speak, there is a right way to speak, and if you diverge from that, you are making a mistake, and it's ugly, and we don't we don't approve of it. And so they sort of go along
2: those those two lines. And it really becomes an existential quandary for them yeah. as it plays out. Daphne becomes a celebrity columnist. How would you describe her column, The People's Pedant?
0: Well, she becomes a a sort of minor local New York kind of celebrity in that maybe something might show up on page six, but she wouldn't be known anywhere else. And if she called to get a reservation for a table at a restaurant, they wouldn't recognize her name and say, oh, yes, we'll give you the best table. But she's known among a certain group of publishing and journalist people. Her column is a kind of rant about what's wrong with language and how it's really the apocalypse and how people are misusing language, and it just shows how society is falling apart. I've read pieces written in, you know, 1902, where someone is saying, you know, the language is being ruined by modern slang, and, you know, and then the slang will be something quite that we've just accepted for decades and don't even think of as slang anymore. So she's in that school.
2: We'll be right back with author Kathleen Deshine. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians,
0: authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast
2: from WHYY and NPR.
1: Support for WABE's
0: local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians.
2: Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. Let's get back to my conversation with the author Kathleen Schein about the grammarians. The story centers around twin sisters, their love for language, and discovering their independent selves. Their parents, Sally and Arthur, have conflicting feelings about the girls' closeness. Here's Kathleen Shine explaining what the parents worry about and fear for their daughters.
0: I really had to think about that, like what would it be like if your children were so close that for Sally, she sometimes feels left out and feels that she doesn't really understand them. On the other hand, she feels confident that they will always take care of each other in some way. I think Arthur, their father, just accepts them more as his children, and they just happen to be kind of the same, but also not. But he doesn't feel left out in the same way that uh, that Sally does. But then when they get married, he's a little concerned and, and just can't imagine how any husband could deal with this, you know, this what he calls a two-headed monster. So, you know, they're like regular parents, but there's this who worry about their children and feel... Closer or less close at various times in their lives, but there's just this little, this twist of having two of them.
2: Yeah. At one point, Arthur wishes his daughters would marry twin brothers. Yes. So that at least the husbands would somehow understand them in in that particular way. Two halves of one. Laurel tells Larry the man she marries, I can be myself with you. I have a Mm -hmm. self with you. What does marriage mean for the twins' relationship with each other?
0: Well, I think for Laurel, it's a way to be herself and be separate and be an individual I felt with her that she was trying to do that in various ways even as they grew up. She was the one who was tending to search for a little bit of a private identity more than her younger sister, younger by 17 minutes, who basically just wanted to catch up. That's Daphne's need is to catch up. So for Daphne, her marriage is less about being independent than being with someone who really understands her and supports her as she very aggressively pursues
2: her career. Dogs figure prominently (laughs) in your writing. One more thing I love about it. And (laughs) there's another clever touch you have with the name of the twins' dog, would you tell us?
0: I realized their parents felt they need a dog because they're so focused on each other. Wouldn't it be good? And also, they're, they're obsessed when they read the dictionary. They keep reading about different dogs. So the parents think maybe it would be good to have a real dog and not just these dictionary dogs. And, of course, they get them an Irish setter, which has red hair the way they do. And inevitably, the girls name the dog Webster.
2: Of course. Of course. Of course. Laurel says to herself, language matters. It it's constantly in her waking mind. In addition to the dictionary's role in this story, what is the role of Fowler's English language usage?
0: Well, first of all, it's it's a lot of fun to read. He's a wonderful writer and it's it's all about usage and he's he's quite um idiosyncratic in some of his ideas. I think for her, it brings her back into this question about what language is and what it does. For both of them, language is central. Language can bring you together and language can pull you apart. And language can be benign and language can be malign. You know, the definition of the word twin I found extremely interesting, which is um, there are two definitions. One is twin as a noun, means the same, two of the same. Twin as a verb means to sever, to pull apart. And um, the richness of language was one of the things I wanted to celebrate in this. You know, much of the book is very playful, and I love language, and I I love playing with words and puns and that kind of thing. But at the same time, it's very serious in that this is a celebration of how our lives express themselves in language and how language can both be confining and also liberating.
2: The twins have a rift. Mm Mm-hmm and their mother takes the role of King Solomon. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what happens?
0: Two things about it. One is, when I finished writing it, for me it was very emotional in terms of just composing it as I wrote it. And when I finished writing it, I thought, okay, this is either really good or really bad and I had to leave it for a while and then come back and decide yes this is this is what I want and also at the end I thought I wonder I wonder if I wrote this entire book because what I really want the whole point of it is to say to my two sons you had better be friends when I'm dead or I'm going to come back and haunt you <laughs> <laughs> So those are the those are the two things I can I can tell you about about the ending without it being a spoiler. Wonderful.
2: Horrible. Oh, so ultimately this is a cautionary tale for your sons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, only one of them has read it, so it won't do much good actually. It, but I noticed okay. in the dedication or in the acknowledgments that's Tommy?
0: Yes, yes, my younger son just got a um a Ph.D. in
2: linguistics. Oh, and, uh, he must have loved <clears> this.
0: Well, uh, he, he read it and, <laughs> you know, and he vetted it to make sure I didn't make any howlers. And yes, no, he, he, did, he did. I was very proud of that. And he also interviewed me, which I think is kind of amazing. He works at Google now and they, he did an interview with me there, which I think is just to have your, your son, your younger son, your baby sit there and interview you about your book. I mean, there can be nothing. There can be no greater happiness. Do you have the book
2: with you? Do you Um, want me
0: to read something?
2: Yes. On page 180, it's the last paragraph.
0: Okay. She was thinking about Fowler, how generous he was, generous toward all the unconscious word formers in the world generous toward even the hapless journalist he could not help but take to task for his fallible analogy of abstentions, but mostly generous toward words themselves. She was touched even by the way he phrased things, fallible word formation, as fallible as the hapless humans who created them. He saw language as if it were living and breathing and muddling through like everyone
2: else. Kathleen Shine, you continue to breathe life into its best about the English language. This book has been such a joy and an equal joy for me in talking with you about it.
0: Well, it's been lovely for me to talk to you again. What a
2: treat. Author Kathleen Shine. Her latest novel is The Grammarians. You've been listening to City Lights, a celebration of the arts and the ways in which we express ourselves creatively. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. to light up the airwaves with Chantal Ritter. She'll tell us about This year's Decatur Lantern Parade Festival. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Loris Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. City Lights is now a podcast. Check it out wherever you download your podcasts and listen whenever you like. Thanks for joining us on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.